Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong. Radiant. Timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. especially because crystals now and minerals are big in the metaphysical world and in the kind of new age stuff, people just kind of greenwash this and say, oh, well, this is all ethically mined and ethically sourced. And my response would be 90% of the time, you can't say that. Unless you actually went there and saw how it was mined yourself, you, you really, you can't say that. Whoever knew that you could put yourself through university by selling rocks on eBay? My guest, Phil Pershawn, did that. He's a geologist, mineral dealer, and owner of a small business in Denver, Colorado called Pershawn Rare Minerals. He digs up crystals and other mineral specimens and also buys and sells existing rock collections. Think everything from gorgeous, translucent green crystals to jagged stones with yellow and black flecks. We talk about the crazy economy of diehard rock collectors and the ethics of digging up precious minerals in problematic parts of the world. I'm Maya Lau, and this is Other People's Pockets, the show where I ask people how much money they make and how their finances work so the questions we all have about money can be a little bit less of a mystery. Hi, Phil. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Where am I reaching you, by the way? So I'm in my office on the west side of Denver, Colorado right now. You're at your office like you have a shop? Yeah, or... so so I okay. have a, a shop that's open by appointment. So it's in a little industrial office park kind of space, which is pretty low key. Cool. Well, I thought it'd be interesting to read the initial email that you wrote to me, um, just because it kind of encapsulates a bit about you. And by the way, I think you're the first, or if not uh, one of the first people that we've interviewed that is actually <laughs> came to us via listening to the show. Okay, so, cool. Um, so just, you know, it, it can happen, you know, for all the people who, who write to us. All right. Well, I'm flattered to be the first. <laughs> so you said, hello, Maya. First of all, I'm a huge fan of your new podcast, Other People's Pockets. The way you discuss and dissect financial literacy and money is fantastic and sorely needed today. I'm skipping around a little bit. I quickly want to make a shameless plug for myself as a possible episode guest. Here's a little bit about me. My name is Phil Pershan, and I'm a 37-year-old geologist and mineral dealer in Denver, Colorado. I run a small business called Pershan Rare Minerals that sells mineral specimens to collectors, scientists, and museums. While I've been selling mineral specimens since high school, this current business is only a few years old after I left my previous job in the same field to restart my business. The last two years have thankfully been super, and now I have annual sales in the mid-six figures, an employee, and a gallery office space on the west side of Denver. 
As additional background, I also put myself through grad school and the end of undergrad completely off of selling rocks on eBay and at local shows. I love talking about the reality of running a small business, being an entrepreneur, and would be glad to transparently share the facts of my personal finances and business, etc. with you in an episode, even if it feels a little scary to do so. Perhaps my weird little nerd niche business might make an interesting episode. Who knows? Okay, why are you into financial transparency and why is it also scary? I think I'm into financial transparency because, frankly, all of the quote-unquote real jobs I've had beyond working for myself, I felt like I was in an environment where there was very little to no financial transparency. Um, And that's not to say that there weren't aspects about those jobs that I loved. It was just more of a traditional workplace where uh, these things weren't discussed at all. And it was really an environment where they felt verboten and felt taboo. So when I discovered your podcast, I thought this is such a cool concept and, uh, you know, it is scary, right? I, I mean, at least from my perspective, you're, you're putting yourself in a vulnerable position in some ways, but there's also, I think, a real empowerment that comes with being vulnerable. So tell me about your journey. Like, why rocks? Where did this start? And where are all the places that you've taken this in your life? Yeah. So, you know, for, for me, it's really been a lifelong thing. And people get into collecting minerals and rocks in, in many different ways. Uh, but for me, it's it's been a thing since I was a little kid. I remember I was born in Sweden. My father's side of my family Swedish. And uh, we had a little outcrop in the backyard with little pyrite crystals in this rock. And I just thought it was the most amazing thing ever. And I could spend hours just trying to pick out these tiny little pyrite crystals. And that translated... Wait, what is a pyrite crystal? Yeah. So good, good question. Thank you. I <laughs> Pyrite is also known as fool's gold. So okay, so that like mineral. flaky gold-looking yeah, yeah, thing you sometimes sparkly, see. Yeah, uh, has kind of a gold look to it, uh, forms little crystals. So, so anyways, very common mineral. Um, you know, I've always been into it. And uh, whether I was a collector, whether I was a dealer, whether I was an uh, entrepreneur, it's, it's always been the thing that my life has kind of been centered around. Why are rocks, minerals, crystals, like, why did that just hold your attention for so long? You know, I think there's a couple different factors, and I think this would hold true for a lot of collectors. Uh, You know, part of it is just the wonder that these things are natural. I I mean, I get this all the time when people come over to my showroom, when I give talks, when I travel for shows. I think people have no idea that these things, A, are natural, and B, the variety, the colors, the shapes— um, you know, everybody's heard of a diamond or, you know, gemstone, that that sort of concept. But when you show people the sort of natural raw form that these things take, it's mind boggling. You know, so for me, when I discovered this as a kid, it was like a whole secret world, you know. And for example, there are minerals that do things called fluorescing. So that basically means that they glow. They emit colors when you put them under UV light. And that was actually my first real exposure to minerals. I went to high school near a place called Franklin, New Jersey. And believe it or not, the state of New Jersey, you would never guess, is actually a mineral hotspot and has this famous place for these minerals that glow. So I remember going into this room and all these rocks were on display and they just looked like garden rocks. And then they turn the light off and they turn on the UV light and they're glowing all these different colors. And I'm like, how can this possibly be natural? So I, I think it was, you know, being a sort of sciencey, nerdy kid. And then also being like, oh, my God, not only can I learn about these things, but like I can actually go out and dig them. I can buy them. I can collect them. So it was the combination of like the intellectual side and then the like, wow, I can actually own these things and trade them and maybe even make a business off of doing this. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you, I would imagine some of it is the do it yourself thing of like you can go out with, I don't know, I'm guessing a pickaxe. I guess you could talk about yep. what you do, but <laughs> like you can go out and and get these rocks. Were you doing that in high school? Was it clandestine? What did that look like for you to be out and like starting to actually dig up various mineral specimens and selling them? Totally. Yeah. So so the way that really evolved for me was I was living near this this place called Franklin, New Jersey, that's famous for all these different minerals. And uh, it's actually the most diverse mineral deposit on Earth, believe it or not. It's these two deposits in northern New Jersey, and they've produced something like 380 different mineral species, which is crazy for one place. So there's about 5,000 minerals, 5,500 minerals known to nature. And to have like 300 something of them in one place is very rare. So anyways, I was privileged to live near this kind of mineral mecca, And I started going out and digging stuff. 
And this was around the year 2000 when eBay was kind of a new thing. And I thought, you know what? I want to I wanna build my mineral collection. At that time, I was the arch nerd in my school. I didn't care about having a car, you know, or a nice clothes or whatever. I just wanted to buy rocks for my collection. So I thought, you know what? The stuff that I'm digging, because I live near this famous place, I can put some of this up on eBay and just see what happens. So where were you getting these mineral specimens? Because my idea is that, you know, there's a lot that's been dug up already. Mm -hmm. There's probably a lot of mines and areas that are done, you know. So do you have to trespass? Do you have to... How do you go and find new crystals? Totally. So, you know, in a place like northern New Jersey, you're in the suburbs, right? You're not in the middle of nowhere. You're in suburban America. And, you know, most of these mines are old. Most of them shut down 100 plus years ago. So in the case of this area, Franklin, the mines have been closed for a long time. And basically, you're collecting on old mine dumps, which are basically just big rock piles. And at this point, you know, 200 years later or whatever, uh, these piles were basically in people's backyards and they were overgrown. And so there was a, a clandestine element to it at times. You know, I remember collecting once, basically in somebody's backyard, my friend and I, and we drove in at night and we parked on a side street and we were breaking rocks and we put like a towel around the hammer to muffle the sounds, you know, because we could look over and like 100 feet away is like somebody watching TV in their house. (laughs) So you were trespassing. Uh, 100%, yeah. (laughs) So there were actually legal places to collect. Uh, There were two museums in that area that both had areas where you could collect minerals that were great. And I would do that a lot. Like protected land. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And really the best way, and for anybody listening that's interested in going mineral collecting, I would really say join a club because the clubs will negotiate access to places that you may not be able to get access to otherwise, right? It's often a gray area as far as access and uh, legality and, you know, there are rules, right? But you can go out and collect crystals and it's perfectly legal. So that's something else I encourage people to, to look into if they're into this. And is this out open air, you with some tools or is any of this mining like going into like an underground mine? Uh, yeah, so some of it is underground. So so usually it's on the surface, uh, but sometimes it's going into old mines. For example, I have a friend who's a professor at the University of Colorado, and he owns a property up near Boulder, Colorado, that's an old silver mine. And part of it's flooded, but part of it you can go into, and we've been into it. And it's fairly safe. You know, you have to be careful, of course, and, you know, wear a hard hat and headlamp and whatever. But, um, yeah, we found some pretty nice crystals, some nice specimens in this old silver mine that shut down in, like, 1940 or something. So let's go over some basic definitions. What are crystals? What are mineral deposits? What are gems and jewels? So, what is kind of the difference between some of these things? So in the very simplest terms, uh, you know, it's probably easiest to start with the definition of what a, a mineral is. A, a mineral is basically a natural solid substance that's inorganic, and it has a definite crystalline structure. And it, basically, rocks are made up of minerals. So you can think of minerals as the building blocks that make up rocks. And, you know, because minerals have a fairly broad definition, there's a lot of minerals out there. We, we refer to them as mineral species. So just like there's a species of ant or a tree or whatever, minerals are called species. And the vast majority of those minerals are not really collectible per se. So the stuff that I focus on and that most collectors focus on are minerals that occur as crystals that are eye visible. They are typically colorful. They typically are lustrous. Lustrous means shiny. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, what draws people to collecting and to minerals is aesthetics, right? Just like in the gem world. And and, and you also Mm -hmm. asked me about gemstones. So basically, a gemstone is not really a scientific definition. A gemstone is basically a mineral that's transparent and typically hard enough to be cut into a shape. So basically, any mineral that is transparent and is hard enough that when you cut it, it's not going to, you know, wear down or abrade or whatever could be considered a gemstone. Okay, so these are all part of the same family, mm-hmm. but you are not digging up what people think of as gemstones. No. So, so, You're so, digging up crystals and or mineral specimens. Exactly. So gemstone only applies okay. to when it's been cut, when it's actually been faceted oh. into that shape okay. by a gem cutter. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. 
Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. I would love to hear about what money was like in your house growing up. Yeah, so uh, I was born in Sweden. Uh, my father's side of my family is Swedish. My mom's American. You know, as a little kid in Sweden, so both my parents were kind of in the academic field. Uh, they worked as researchers at a place called the Karolinska Institute, which is outside Stockholm. So I definitely felt middle class as a kid. Um, so my father, he was the first in his family to go to college. His parents were working class people. My aunt and uncle over in Sweden run a dairy farm. My cousins do construction kind of stuff. So they come from more of a blue collar background versus my mom's side of my family. My, my great grandfather had started a company doing advertising and mail stuff and that had been successful. And then my grandfather had taken that over. Um, so they had a fair bit of money. But I, I think that, you know, it was something where my mom, 
never wanted to take advantage of that unless she really felt like she had to. Then when I was about seven, my father passed away when we moved to the States. Um, I, you know, it was really just myself and my sister and my mom for a while and money felt really tight. And I was aware of how little money my mom made, even though she was very accomplished in her field and had a PhD in biochemistry and stuff. You know, she really didn't make much money. And what class do you consider yourself now? I would say sort of upper middle class. Uh, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't feel rich, but I'm making a good income and I feel stable. Um, I, I, I liked one of your early episodes, you had Adam Davidson on and you, uh, he mentioned being a Henry, which was a high earning and not rich yet. And I thought that was sort of an interesting term. Um, that Do you I think could you're a Henry? I, I feel like I'm maybe a, a burgeoning Henry. I don't know. <laughs> Aspire, <laughs> well, aspiring Henry. You said Henry. you make decent money. You said something along those lines. What does that look like? What How, how yeah. much money do you make? Yes. So this past year, I took about 160000 out of my business for myself. And then the year before that was a little higher, was about two fifty. Um, so I've only been doing my, my current incarnation of my business now for about two and a half years, but I've been able to take anywhere from 160 to 250, 270 a year out for myself and have it, you know, have my business still thrive. Um, you know, my previous job before that I was making about 65,000 and then I would get some little bonuses here and there and other things, you know, healthcare, et cetera. Right. It's a little different when you're self-employed. So my previous job, I was working for a company called Collector's Edge Minerals, and uh, they're a, a mineral dealer. They're kind of like what I do. They just do it at a, at a bigger scale. So they are in Golden, Colorado, which is also on the west side of Denver, close to me. And they have been around for about 30 years, and they sell minerals to collectors like I do, but they, they're much more involved in the high end of the market. And when I say high end, I mean individual mineral specimens that sell for tens of thousands to sometimes over a million dollars each. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And this is a single mineral specimen? Single mineral specimen. For... So just think okay. one rock. Okay. What is a rock that would sell for over a million dollars? So one example would be uh, the mineral rhodochrosite. So rhodochrosite is a beautiful red crystal. It's a manganese carbonate mineral, and it forms these, these very bright cherry red crystals that are often transparent. And we have a place here in Colorado where I live called the Sweet Home Mine that was an old silver mine in the 1800s. And it never really made much money as a silver mine, but it was famous for these rhodochrosite crystals, these red crystals going back to like the 1870s. Um, and my, my ex-boss actually reopened this mine in the 90s just for the crystals. So he basically mm -hmm. thought that it would be profitable to mine this deposit just for these rhodochrosite crystals. And he found some amazing pieces. And, and he found at least in today's market, he found probably 20 to 50 individual pieces that would sell over a million dollars. So imagine, wow. for example, and that's how big, like how, like. So you imagine, not that big. Oh yeah, something the size of uh, of your fist, a little bit bigger than your oh fist. Oh my god! Yeah. Okay, who is buying that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, in a word, wealthy people. Uh, <laughs> you, Just you know, individual, or like a museum, or yeah. So random it, it, wealthy it varies. Some of them are random wealthy collectors. Some of them are museums. Mm -hmm. uh, but typically, it's private collectors. Typically, it's people that are collectors and they have some money. And, uh, and this is what they collect. Just like in the art market, some of them are driven by the trophy aspect, right? They want to have the best. And, you know, it's the same with minerals. The competition creates demand. And, you know, with minerals, it's a little different because there's always a chance that they could find another amazing deposit of these, right? But, but it's, very, it's very unlikely. So going back to your, some of your past work, What's every salary you've ever had? So, you know, I was fortunate in that uh, I studied geology in college and I started my undergrad actually at the Colorado School of Mines, which is uh, pretty well known for mining and geology and engineering kind of stuff. And that school did a really good job with getting students into internships. And those internships pay pretty well as far as student internships go. So, you know, my first summer after uh, my freshman year, I got an internship working out in Nevada. This would have been about 2005. And I think I was making like 18 bucks an hour. And then they gave me a place to live. They gave me a truck to drive around. You know, it was great. I felt like I won the lottery. And then a, a couple years after that, things weren't going so hot at the, the school of mines for me. I was struggling in the engineering courses and I actually flunked out. Uh, and went to community college for a year before I finished my undergrad. But anyways, at that point, I was kind of in the internship thing, so to speak. And I was able, even though I had flunked out of the school and I was now at community college for a year, I was able to get a couple more of these internships that actually paid pretty well, 
you know, for the time. So I think my next internship after that, I made like 22 bucks an hour. The next one was like 25 or 26 or something. These, these are the kind of jobs where you work a lot of hours and you live in the middle of nowhere and you don't really have anything to do. So you, it's pretty easy to save money. And also they give you a place to live and they, you know, take care of your expenses and stuff. So basically, uh, I was able to save money through doing that. And at that point, my mom had also said, you know, look, I, I helped you out with undergrad and then you flanked out and <laughs> now you got to kind of figure this out on your own a little bit, right? Which, which I'm actually very grateful for because it taught me some financial literacy that I didn't have. And I was also in a really fortunate position where I was able to actually uh, pay for the end of undergrad. So I ended up going to University of Colorado and getting my undergrad from there. I was able to pay for most of my school expenses through internships, which, you know, as you know, like a lot of people in the 60s and 70s were able to do that. Uh, but now it's it's pretty much, I wouldn't say it's unheard of, but it's tough, right? And you paid for part of your college with just your own digging for minerals, right? Yeah, yeah. So that was when I went back to grad school. So so I finished okay. Uh, okay. my undergrad in 2012. And all the jobs that I was looking at, just A, they, they weren't things that I was really excited about. And B, I just, I, I didn't feel qualified. They were things like working oil and gas companies and environmental sampling. And, you know, I, I mean, they were fine, but I just thought, you know what? I'm going to sell minerals instead. I'm just going to mm -hmm. start going out and collecting these minerals and putting them on eBay because that was something I kind of knew how to do. I'd done it back in high school and just see how it goes. And so like how much money were you making at that point yeah, on, on uh, your own work? So I think I was, let's see. So that would have been 2013, 2014. I think my gross sales for the year was probably about 100 to 140,000. Let's, let's say like 130. And then my profit out of that was probably 60, 65. So, so I was really happy with that. You know, it was. And so to be clear, this is like what you're doing outside of school. Yep. Which yep. you were already doing full time. This is you going out and digging for rocks. This is me That's... going out and digging for rocks. Yeah. yeah. You know, one thing I was thinking about is, you know, people say like money doesn't grow on trees, but it does for you at least grow <laughs> in the ground. And yeah. what a great skill to have. Like, I wonder if you ever think about like, gee, if I was completely down my luck for whatever reason, my business tanked and nobody would hire me, like you could just go out and start digging for rocks. Yeah. Like not no. everyone can do that. <laughs> it, it's it, it's true. And it, it's funny to hear you say that because it's something that I just take for granted, right? But then I look at it from an outsider perspective and it's kind of insane, right? It's like, this is how the world worked like a hundred years ago, right? Like yeah. people went out West and it was just like, you know, find your, uh, your treasure, you know, whether it was like farming or digging up minerals or whatever. Gold rush. Gold or, yeah. rush. Yeah. And it's, I think there is actually relatively few people that still Still do this. So going back to your business now, you said that you pay yourself about 150, maybe I think you said like up to 250 or something yep. like that a year. How much are you making in overall revenue? Yeah. So my gross sales last year was a little over 700. It was about 740. Oh, wow. And then the year before was actually very similar. It was about, about 750. And and now kind of in, you know, year two going into year three for me, uh, I, I feel like I'm in that that phase where I'm still in a, a in a good trajectory and I'm still, you know, feel like sales have been strong and, and things are good. But I'm putting more and more money back into my business. And now I have an employee. I have a physical space that I pay rent for. So just, you know, my overhead's gone up. And I'm also trying to be intentional about putting money back into my business. So give me a sense of like, you're, if you're making 700 k a year in revenue, how much do you have to reinvest into your business in terms of just buying more rock collections so that yeah. you can sell those. So, you know, it, it actually, I, I do everything in QuickBooks and I would be lying if I said I check it all the time. I have an accountant who's wonderful. And it was interesting when I was doing my taxes recently for this for this past year, I looked at how much I spent on, on inventory and I was like, wow, I spent like $350,000 just oh, wow. on, on inventory. So yes, right. I made I made 700K, but like I spent half that basically right. on on inventory you know, and I still have yeah, a lot of that inventory. Yeah, just keep your business going. Yeah. Well, to keep my yeah. business going and also it's opportunistic, right? Like when I, sure. you know, when I get offered a collection, sometimes it's kind of out of the blue. Mm -hmm. What's your net worth? You know, that's a, an interesting question. Uh, for, for me, a lot of my net worth is tied up in the assets of my business, right? Because I have a lot of inventory that's sitting that I haven't sold yet. So I guess if I consider that my net worth, which it is in a sense, right? I'm a sole proprietor business. 
you know, uh, plus my home equity. I mean, I'm lucky to live in a place like Denver where the housing market has been crazy, like a lot of the country. And we bought our home in 2019. And I just got the assessment the other day. And I was like, oh, my God, this I can't believe it's gone up this much in like one year. Um, so, so we got very lucky there, my partner and I, when, when we bought our home. Um, so I, I think if I added my business assets plus my home equity plus my cash savings, uh, it's around a million, probably a little less than a million, which is kind of, to me, is crazy to say out loud mm-hmm. because I did not think at this point in my life I would have that kind of uh, net worth. Now, that said, to, to realize that, right, I would have clear, to... that's when you add it all up, all your assets yeah. minus any debt you have. Exactly. And I'm also very mm-hmm. lucky not to have a lot of debt, not to really have any debt right now. I mean, I have debt in my mortgage, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I don't have student How loans. How much debt do you have in your mortgage? Uh, I think at this point, so we paid four fifty for our home. Uh, we've paid off about... 100-ish, I want to say 80. So plus all the, you know, uh, crazy interest and everything. So I don't know, probably 400 or something like that left. But mm-hmm. our latest assessment came in at 750 or 760, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I, I, I would have to crunch the numbers there. But but that's definitely my, my biggest debt. I'm really lucky not to have student loans because I was able to, to pay for grad school through, you know, basically through my business, mm-hmm. through, through selling mm-hmm. rocks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't have any real business debt either as far as, you mm-hmm. know, loan, loans to buy inventory or anything. And are you married? I, I have a partner. Yeah. He, him and I are not married technically, but we've been together for about 12 years. And uh, mm-hmm. he's, he's an architect. He works for a small architecture firm in Denver. And, uh, he, you know, he has a pretty stable employment, lo- loves what he does. He's the kind of the, the normal one. You know, people understand what he does when I tell them what I do. It's, there, there's there's yeah. always an explanation involved. Yeah. <laughs> and so some of what, when you were talking about your net worth, some of it is mixed in with his... Exactly. You know, like yeah. the house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. We, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, so yeah. I, I would have to subtract out, you know, my part of that equity, right? For, you know, right. assuming that we split it 50-50. Right. But, uh, but yeah, in that sense, you know, and we, we don't have kids. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're uh, what, what do they call it? The dinky, right? Yep. The dual income, no kids. Um, yeah, you're dink almost Henry's. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Dink almost Henry's. We'll, we'll use yeah. all, the, all, all the metaphors, yeah. <laughs> Acronyms, yeah. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards. 
an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. So I'm on your website looking at the minerals you have for sale. I sorted by most expensive to least expensive. And yep. as of now, the most expensive is called Elbite, and you can correct me, Elbite Tourmaline, yep. uh, Rubaya District, North Kivu Province, Democratic Republic of the Congo, selling for $11,000. Um, just from a layperson's point of view, this looks like a tall green crystal. Yep. Tell me about this. I have questions about the ethics of mining in various places. And I think most people might know Democratic Republic of the Congo isn't exactly known for its human rights <laughs> record. There's yeah. some child labor going on there. Yeah. So, like, how do you really know how these things are mined? And yeah. is there an ethical way to be doing this? Yeah. So, basically, there was a find of gem-quality tourmaline in the north part of Kivu province, which is in the eastern DR Congo. And this is an area that had already uh, been in the news for some armed conflict. Uh, and then in addition to that, it had also been in the news because there is a mineral called coltan. Coltan is a very important component of what goes into these little capacitors that go into our smartphones and computers and stuff. So it's considered mm -hmm. a strategic mineral. And a lot of this was being mined in the same area in the Congo. And mm. there were concerns about sourcing, right, about ethics, child labor, also forced labor. Um, so this is all happening in the same area. So anyways, they started finding these gem tourmaline crystals, and it was like a gold rush, right? I mean, this is a very poor part of the world, and people are motivated by opportunity. And if you're a farmer in the eastern Congo, finding one of these crystals could change your life, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's really a motivator for people. So people flooded to this area. There were thousands of people. I mean, I can send you video of just chaos, just, you know, villages mm. sprung up overnight, a whole economy springs up associated with this boom, right? Uh, and they started finding these crystals. And so I purchased my crystals from a guy who's living in Rwanda, just across the border, in uh, a place called Gisenyi, which is a city in Rwanda. It's about maybe a two-hour drive from the gem area where the crystals are being found. And the guy I've been dealing with is actually a Pakistani guy from a gem dealing family. And he moved over to Rwanda specifically to be close to this find. And what mm -hmm. he does typically is he goes over to the Congo and buys these crystals directly from the miners and then smuggles them across the border into Rwanda. Most stuff is being smuggled out of the country. It's complicated exporting stuff from the Congo. So he tells me sometimes he goes by car. Sometimes he actually takes a boat. There's a big lake called Lake Kivu that's a very scenic area that he'll take a boat with the crystals. I have an idea what's going on. You know, there are children involved in mining these things, right? There's issues with some of the armed groups, right? Because this is a lot of money coming out. I mean, I, I don't know what the total value of these crystals has been, but it's certainly in the many millions at this point. I would say tens of millions at least. So, you know, that motivates some of these armed groups to try to take control of the area. And then you have problems with that too. I mean, the way I look at it is these are amazing crystals. 
for this mineral, they're very high quality. And I saw an opportunity to get some. I thought they could be something that I could sell. Yeah, I mean, wait, like, because <laughs> yeah, you're, you're saying, like, yeah. you know, yeah, there, there, are, there is child labor going on in these places, <laughs> and there is harm. <laughs> I, I know, I know, I know. And I mean, I to, to be clear, like, I have, yeah. I'm wearing a diamond on my hand that's sure. like my engagement slash yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, wedding ring <laughs> truthfully like i mean it's from my grandma i don't know yeah. for a fact who mined this diamond or where. yeah so like how do you yeah. how do you square i mean do you ask questions like if your dealer was like oh yeah for sure like a bunch of kids dug this up would you be like <laughs> you know what? i just don't want to go i don't want it or like yeah. Yeah. How do you how do you navigate that? It's it's because... it's tough. It, it definitely it is an ethical dilemma for me at times. And I, I'll back up a little bit and I'll say that the majority of stuff that I sell is not from new finds. So most mm-hmm. I would say eighty percent of what I sell is from old collections. And you know that's not to say that this crystal wasn't mined under bad conditions a hundred years ago, right? It's just I don't know about it. So that that's most of the stuff I deal with. But when I do buy new finds, whether it's from the Congo, whether it's from Myanmar, whether it's from South Africa. There's a lot of questions associated with that Mm -hmm. because I think that the closer to the source you can buy, the bigger fraction of that money is going into that community, hopefully, Mm -hmm. and into the hands of these people who are really, you know, risking their lives to, to, to find these things. You know, I mean, okay, maybe some of it is going into a rebel group. I can't count that out, right? Especially because crystals now and minerals are big in the metaphysical world and in the kind of new age stuff. People just kind of greenwash this and say, oh, well, this is all ethically mined and ethically sourced. And my response would be 90% of the time, you can't say that. Unless you actually went there and saw how it was mined yourself, you, you really, you can't say that. Right. So this tourmaline, this green crystal you have for sale, it looks really big on the picture just because, I don't know, because it's focused on it, but it's it's only three and a half inches tall. Yep. So you're selling it for 11000 How much profit will you make on this? How much did you pay? Well, which is tied to how much did you pay the dealer? Yep. And how much do you think the Congolese miner who actually got this... Totally. Yeah. So so I'll back up a little bit and just mention a little something about pricing. You know, Mm -hmm. in in my field, and it's the same with art and antiques and most collectibles, there's a certain discount that's sort of built into the price, right? In other words, you know, my my list price is eleven thousand, but if if I've had it for a little while and somebody emails me and says, you know, I'd like to offer you ninety five hundred, okay, fine. So with most of my minerals, there's a twenty percent, sometimes thirty percent discount that's sort of built into that. So so let's assume for the sake of argument that I sell it for 9500 When I purchased it, I bought it by weight because the people that cut stones care more about the weight. They care about mm-hmm. quality as well, but the weight is an easy way to measure, right? Right. So I, so I bought these by gram. So I think I paid $28, $29 per gram for that crystal. So I, I think I have the weight on my website. I, I, yeah, I forget. 144 grams. Okay. So you can do the math there. I think that's about... Four thousand dollars. I think it's about thirty five hundred, four thousand dollars. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so that's so, so that's what I paid for that. So if I sell it for ninety five hundred, I'm making a good profit. I'm making a two x profit, a little over two x profit, and that's typically what I aim for in most of my purchases. And and that's how a lot of dealers uh, treat their markup. If you can make a two x markup on something, that's considered pretty good. You know, now there are people in the high end world who will sell something for a twenty x markup or a fifty x markup, or maybe you got a super good deal. Or on the flip side, let's say you got a really special specimen, a really rare, unique thing uh, that you have a customer for, right? You might be willing to work on a small margin on like a, a 10 or 20% margin just because you can move that thing quickly. And also if it's say $100,000, you know, 20% margin is still 20 grand, right? So I think to the outsider, maybe they might think, wow, 2x markup, you know, you bought that for four grand and now you're asking 9,500 or 11,000, you know, what the heck? But, you know, realize that I bought this as part of a group of crystals, right? All the other crystals that I have on my website from the location, I bought them all together. And I, you know, I, I wired a guy in Rwanda who I've never met like $24,000, right? He could have just said, get lost. You know, this is how, this is the nature of the business. It's a handshake business. So I, I, I laid out a whole bunch of cash initially for this lot of these crystals. 
And I've sold a few of them, but I'm still in the period of like getting back to zero, so to speak, right? And then mm-hmm. the other ones are the profit. So, okay, so you're selling it for 11000 You paid the dealer 4000 How much do you think the Congolese miner got paid? So I'm guessing, if I had to guess, that my guy in Rwanda probably paid the miner something like 20 bucks a gram. So I paid like 26, he paid around 20. So that would be like 2,800. Yeah, exactly. 2,800, 3,000, something like that. So his profit is actually not as big as you might expect. I'm spending enough money with him where that helps him pay some bills. And he's like, okay, I'll do this deal for like a 20% profit or a 30% profit. Mm -hmm. And do you know if it's like just a single... Congolese miner who got this and got the $2,800? Or could there be like a million other layers where like he says he's the miner, but actually the person who dug it up is some child and then the child had to sell it to someone else. And you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's probably a team. Uh, There's a word called cruiser, which is a a French Congolese word, which basically means digger. And the, the Mm -hmm. the cruisers in that area in North Kivu often operate in teams, right? And so they Mm kind of share the profits and they also share the Mm -hmm. risk because realize Mm -hmm. that they could be digging for like two weeks and hitting nothing. And then they find this one crystal that they sell for 2,800 to Mm -hmm. my my Mm -hmm. guy, right? Mm -hmm. So that, you know, during the period where they're not finding anything, they all kind of pool their cost of food and living. And then my guess is, you know, when they sell this crystal, it's probably shared, that money shared among a a group of people. Mm How long have you had this crystal in stock? Yeah, so I bought this, uh, let's see, it's uh, early May now. I got these in late February. So, so not that long. So about about three months, three and a half months. How quickly do you think they'll sell or this one will sell, for example? You, you know, I, I, I shouldn't say this on air, but uh, these have been a little bit of a tough sell for me at times. They're, they're beautiful. And I think that they're very high quality for the mineral. And uh, I'm very happy to have them. It's not like if I went back, I would say I wouldn't do this deal. But they've been a little bit of a hard sell for me because they're expensive. And also tourmaline is not a super rare mineral. It occurs in a lot of different localities. So I, I guess my answer is that I think I'll definitely sell it in the next year. But am I expecting to sell it in the next month? You know, not not necessarily. And another aspect, probably the more important aspect, is that I don't have a whole lot of customers who spend that kind of money. So most mm-hmm. of my customers are buying pieces from 50 to, let's say, $1,000. You know, and even more specifically, they're buying stuff from 50 to a couple hundred bucks. I mean, you looked at my website, mm-hmm. which is where I put some of my, my better stuff. I mm-hmm. also do a lot of eBay mm-hmm. stuff. I have about mm-hmm. 1,300 items on eBay. My typical eBay price point, my sale price point average is like $75. And speaking of your average customers, crystals are one of these things where there's kind of the goop of it all, the like woo-woo, I want to have a a beautiful home with crystals and I do yoga and I believe in their healing properties. And then there's also people who um, I'm guessing are more like the stamp collector crowd. Maybe they're (laughs) older. (laughs) Um, Can you talk about like who is buying these and what's kind of the range of people who are really interested in buying crystals? Yeah. So so as much as I like to think that we're better than or more interesting than the stamp people, I would have to admit that most of my clientele is is more the stamp end of your analogy. (laughs) So so I don't deal a lot with the sort of goop uh, metaphysical new age crowd. And that's not to say that I don't sell to those folks. And I certainly, some of them are my friends. I know a lot of those people, but it's just not really the focus of my business. Do you believe that crystals have any healing powers? Uh, 100% no. (laughs) But you know what? Honestly, my feelings on this have, I would say that they've moderated because I think it's sort of a fundamental, you know, you believe or you don't believe. But I like to think I'm less judgmental than I used to be about people's belief in that. You know, basically my attitude now is if it makes you feel good, if it makes you happy, that's great. That's valid. Who am I to invalidate the fact that this crystal makes you feel good and makes you happy? That's wonderful. And frankly, a lot of these people are my are my customers. So, you know, I'm not going to rain on their parade just because it's not something I ascribe to. What do you make of the relationship between the fact that there's this high demand for these rare minerals driven in part by customers who are wealthy and the fact that there are ethical questions and maybe sometimes child labor used to get these minerals. Um, Do your customers ask these questions? Do they care about the provenance of these rocks? 
I, I would say most don't. Honestly, it's just about the specimen. So I, I would say it's quite rare that I get those kind of questions. What does enough look like to you? For me, enough is, is feeling like I have a trajectory for retirement. Uh, so having a cash buffer where, you know, if, if it really kind of hit the fan, so to speak, I would be able to, to not only coast for a while, but maybe have a path towards retirement. I think some of it is just having either no debt or little debt in my life, right? Do you feel like you're well on your way to your definition of enough right now? I feel like I am, and I'm certainly ahead of where I thought I would be at this point, especially in starting a new business. But I also feel like there are going to be hiccups on the way, and there are going to be ups and downs. And I'm trying to keep myself kind of mentally ready for that, right? Like, in other words, if next year... If let's say there is a recession in the middle market, I, I, I want to be ready for those things. Hopefully that doesn't happen, but, but hopefully if it does, I, I'm okay with that. Phil, this is so fun to talk to you. Thank you so much for being on Other People's Pockets. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a privilege to share my little nerd world with a, a broader audience. So it was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to Other People's Pockets. And hey, I have a quick favor. If you like this show, please tell a friend. I dare you to text a friend about it right now. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Word of mouth and reviews really help us out. Other People's Pockets is written and hosted by me, Maya Lau. It's produced by me along with Joy Sanford and Dan Gallucci. Production help from Angela Vang. Our executive producers are me, along with Jane Marie and Dan Gallucci. Special thanks to Backyard Crystals. Other People's Pockets is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and Little Everywhere. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love this show, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus, offering bonus content and ad-free listening across our network for $4.99 a month. Look for the Pushkin Plus channel on Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. You can sign up for Pushkin newsletters at pushkin.fm. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Open a limited time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average. Plus, it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter.